nearly 20 years ago now, I was a youth minister in central Indiana in a town called Converse. And just up the road from us was a Christian camp. A lot of churches went to this camp in the summer. But it was just right in our backyard, and so I found myself uh, out there at Rainbow Christian Camp uh, a number of times through the, through the school year because they, the camp would have school-age kids come out for field trips. One thing that I was involved with volunteering at the camp was being a facilitator for, for groups to come out from middle school kids to high school kids to even adults would come out, college-age kids, and we would take them through what was popular at the time. I don't know if it's so much now, but team-building exercises and, and trust-building exercises and we had low ropes initiatives all over the campgrounds and even up in the trees, some of the higher either catwalk or climbing walls and zip lines and things of that nature that I was trained on. And um, one of the things that uh, I was doing this particular day was taking a group of about 26th graders through uh, some of these group building activities. And one boy in that group of 6th graders was particularly squirrely. I mean, he just reminded me of just a, a puppy and he was excited about every stick and I wanted to look at every leaf and wanted to go off and explore into the woods and it was everything I could do to keep that group together and keep that one boy focused on what we were doing for the five seconds that he had that attention span. And so I kept him close to me. I wanted him to be, um, you know, really just laser focused in on what we were trying to accomplish together because so much of what I was trying to do was was just gain ground with relationships within the group and to accomplish things as a group and not just an individual. Well, there was one particular element uh, and I believe it had to do with some kind of balance, uh, whether it was on a platform or um, on some kind of a, a pole, a telephone pole. Anyway, I told him that he needed to stay with the group and not run off to the other side of this thing. It wasn't five seconds. We were about ready to start and he takes off under the other side of this element and throws some, some of our balance off and some of the kids fell off and it completely just ruined what we were trying to do. And I could tell immediately he was angry. He was angry at himself. He um, started he just started going off on himself. He knew, he thought he knew what was coming from me because it just seemed like all of his teachers, all the administrators, even maybe some people at home, I don't know what this kid's home life was like, but he knew that he had messed up and everything was his fault uh, and he started just laying into himself. He just separated himself from the group. He was cussing himself out. He was punching himself in the head. I mean, it was just that bad. Where all I wanted to do was reach out and rescue him from himself. He didn't believe me when I said I wanted him to join us again. He didn't trust me that I trusted him to try again. He really didn't think that I believed he could do anything right. Because he didn't believe he could do anything right. He was stuck at Romans 7 and what he needed was a bit of Romans 8. We've all been there, right? Shame is different than guilt. Shame is from the accuser and the accuser wants to destroy you 
Shame says, you're never any good, you never can do anything right, there's no hope for you to even get anything, there's no, nobody wants you, you know, you're hopeless. Shame just beats you up and keeps beating you up as long as you let it. Guilt, on the other hand, is from the Holy Spirit and can be convicting, but it says, it, it, it brings about a response in us that is, well, I did something wrong. I, I made a poor choice. I need to maybe make reconciliation for that choice. I need to do something in repentance that um, that shows that I have uh, turned away from what I did and I, I, I want to do right now and I want to be forgiven. That's very different than shame. Shame doesn't seek reconciliation. Shame's, shame seeks isolation and ultimately destruction of the person. The kid hated himself. He hated himself and he thought that I did too. And he thought that I would send him away, I would, that I would send him alone in detention where probably he was used to going. This is the tension between Romans 7.24 and Romans 7.25. This kid was stuck at Romans 7.24. Why am I in Romans 7 when I just said I was going to be in Romans 8 for the next eight weeks? Well, we have to get a little bit of backstory. We have to figure out why Paul starts Romans 8 with such a confident, strong declaration. And we have to go back to the beginning a little bit. Bear with me just a second and flip to Romans 1. I'm not going to read much. I'm going to summarize. So Romans 1 is basically bad news. It's bad news for everybody because everybody has, has done wrong. All of the nations have rebelled against God. It doesn't matter how much how clear it was in creation that that God showed himself they've rejected the truth and they've turned to other gods and and God's wrath is going to be poured out on all of this that's bad news chapter 2 is bad news but it's for a specific group of people the Jewish nation um, they thought they had all of the good things going for them they were Abraham's children they had the covenants they they had God's promises um, they were they were supposed to be God's you know, chosen people, but they rejected him too. And they, have, they relied on their own righteousness, and God says that's not going to get you anywhere. And Romans 3, the first half of it, is bad news for everybody. Um, no one is righteous, and not a single person is righteous. And then Romans 3.21 begins to turn the page a little bit, to turn into good news. And it says, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this being right with God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the good news. And we know this in theory, and many of us know it by experience, and we trust it as the grace that it is. Paul goes on and basically explains how this life looks in chapter 6. And I'm just, again, I'm going to go through some of these lines and describe the life that uh, really, it makes sense, the logical conclusion of a life that's been redeemed by the blood of Christ and responded to his great gift would look. And it looks like this in Romans 6, 
verse 2, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Uh, Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, and we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who died, has died, has been freed from sin. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it rule your heart so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Sin shall not be your master. For you are, you are not under law, you are under grace. And this is something we all aspire to. As, as people who have said yes to Jesus and understand his love for us and his great sacrifice as he laid down his own life on the cross and he, and he was raised to life on the third day. The tomb is empty. We, we proclaimed it last week on Easter Sunday. And then, and then life happens. And then poor choices are made. And then Romans 7 hits us upside the head. And Paul knew this. This is why he wrote it. He's just being transparent here. In Romans 7, verse 14, he basically says, I am unspiritual. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree the law is good. There's nobody saying that God's word is bad. I know I should follow this. I know it's God's word. I know it's truth. And by not doing it, I don't say it's bad. I just don't do it. I know what that's 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 exactly what that kid said to me. When when I caught up with him after he totally messed up our activity, everybody is upset. We can't get the thing accomplished. I go over to him and I'm like, "What what happened?" And he said, and I quote, "I know I did I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway." Yep. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel sometimes. And Paul does too. Verse 17, in the middle there, I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, I, for I do what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Verse 21, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I love God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my body. And he makes this declaration, and his heart is breaking, and that kid in that camp is saying, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It's a valid question. It's a real struggle. We know the bad news. We believe the good news, the gospel of Christ. We understand what an ideal Christian life ought to look like, but we're caught in this war with ourselves between our will, our mind, our heart, our affections, our flesh, and it's all boiling up inside of us, and we make mistakes, and we feel like we've let God down again. 
And how long is it before he's going to just send us away to the principal's office or detention or give us up altogether and expel us from his, from his heaven and won't let us in? I don't know about you, but as a younger person, I, depending on how I thought I behaved through the week, was whether or not when I showed up in church on Sunday, whether or not I thought I was actually going to heaven or not. I, I gauged my behavior, and if it was good, I thought, well, I, I think I'm okay. But if I really thought I messed it up, I came to church thinking, if I died now, I wouldn't make it. It was week to week, whether or not I thought I was saved or not. But I didn't get to Romans 8. I didn't understand, or nobody told me, or I didn't believe the powerful conclusion that that Paul makes in the very first verse of chapter 8. He says, therefore, well, what's the therefore, therefore? Everything we just talked about. All of this that we just mentioned, that all being said, therefore, even though there's a, a war at work within my body and within my mind, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you've got to be in Christ Jesus to not be condemned. But I thought I was in Christ Jesus, but then I was hanging on by a thread. Paul seems to think, there's no reason to worry. Those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for them. And then he tells us why. Because, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Was I good enough? No. Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. The law was powerless to do this. My sense of right and wrong, my my ability to do right or not do right is is wasn't the the case here verse 3 says the law is weak because of who we are in our flesh the law is not bad it's just that it's not going to get us there but god did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man he looked just like any one of us god did this because he sent his own son to be a sin offering and he condemned sin in sinful man Notice where the condemnation is here. The condemnation is not on us. The condemnation is on sin. Jesus, through his flesh, on the cross, condemned sin. And what did he accomplish? Verse 4, The righteous requirements of the law were fully met in us. Because we're in Christ, the righteous requirements of the law are met. God has holy, righteous requirements. He requires perfection. No one, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? None of us in our own self. None of us in our own sinful nature. But Jesus did it. He accomplished it. And it is by faith in Him, and living according to what He says, living according to the Spirit, and not by our sinful nature, that we can stand confident 
not being condemned. I don't know if that's what you need to hear today. I don't know if you fear just ticking God off one more time and He's going to write you, write you off and send you away. I don't know if you're there, but I hope that this first few verses can tell you you're in Christ Jesus. You're striving to walk by the Spirit because of faith in Christ. You may still struggle. There's still a war within you. That Jesus is Lord, but yet sometimes you still make those mistakes. But there's no condemnation for you. It's not that you're sinless. You just sin less as time goes on. And we're going to get into more and more of what that looks like in Romans 8. But let me flip this coin over and, and read this text um, in, the opposite, in the opposite way. Because there may not be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is condemnation for those who are not in Him. That's the bad news. There is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus because they have not been set free from the law of sin and death. They're still enslaved by sin. Death still has hold on them. And their idea of being a good person, they think is going to get them reward from God or eternity with Him. or Their idea of being a good person um, should get them something, but it's not going to. They don't know their weakness. They don't know the inadequacy of their own efforts. And they reject what Jesus has done, thinking that they can do it themselves. And the righteous requirements of the law are not met in them because they live by the sinful nature and not by the Spirit. I guess the question that we should ask ourselves today is, are you, are you in Christ? Have you professed faith in what He accomplished on the cross? If not, there is a condemnation waiting for you. And I wouldn't want that on anybody. Are you condemning yourself? If, that's the next question. If, if you're a Christian, do you sit around condemning yourself? Fearing for your own eternity, but you believe in Jesus and you love Him and you endeavor to serve Him, are you condemning yourself still? If so, are you walking in the Spirit or according to the flesh? The question I think we have to keep asking ourselves is, is there something within us? And the answer is always yes. Is there something within us that is according to the sinful nature still and needs to be eliminated, needs to be, needs to be walking by the Spirit instead? Are there things of the flesh that we need to let go of? And what are those things? That's something that only you can answer. Between you and God, and maybe you, you know exactly what that is, and maybe you can make a list, and you've been trying harder, and you've been making promises, and it doesn't quite work, because it's God's power in you that eliminates these things. It's God's strength in you. It's His Word that transforms your heart, not following more rules to be a good person. It's a, it's, a, it's a very tricky, fine line between your own effort to eliminate sin in your life and submitting to God's law and saying yes to Him. 
Romans 12.21 states it like this, Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If there's ever anything that we are doing that's according to the flesh, it needs to be stopped. But there needs to be something done in its place to, to, to overcome evil with good. It's not, it doesn't do any good just to say no. You need to say yes to something else. And that is something that only God can, can do in you because you desire Him more than you desire the sin in your life. I, I think I have, uh, I have felt this way and I think that a lot of people do that we love God just enough that we don't enjoy our sin, but we love our sin just enough that we don't really enjoy God. And that's a miserable place to be as a Christian. Miserable. There's no joy in that at all. It's full of accusation. It's full of shame. And I think it's where a lot of us live sometimes. And we need Romans 8, 1. Stand on the rock of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Turn your attention to the one who took your condemnation and give him thanks. Jesus, in your name we come and in your power we trust to walk according to your ways and to have your spirit dwell in us there's all kinds of evil in our world and there's all kinds of temptations that drag us down and the accuser wants nothing more than to take us away from you to isolate us from your people to convince us that we're nothing and will never amount to anything we're terrible Christians and we don't even deserve to go to church or take communion or anything and he wants us isolated and conquered and divided but God, bring us together under the umbrella of your grace, knowing that you're making us more into the likeness of Jesus by your strength and not our own. We ask all of this as we get into this chapter for the next few weeks. Help us to know, help me to not just know, but to listen and to obey what it is to walk according to the Spirit and to put aside the deeds of the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.